Amen. Bit of a weird ending there. This glorious prayer, and then you get an announcement. Hey, just so you guys know, um, the this man that we were just talking about, Lord, give me mercy in the sight of this man, is actually the king, Artaxerxes at the time, and I am his cupbearer. This is Nehemiah, the Jew, the Jewish servant to the king, who is called and burdened and led by God to return to Jerusalem, the holy city, some 13 years or so after Ezra, the priest, to be a part of rebuilding the walls around God's place for God's people in Jerusalem. And Nehemiah really is a story after God's own heart. It's a perfect story for us to come back to after this 10 weeks in exile. You'll want to remember that Ezra and Nehemiah in your Bibles were originally one book. Ezra and Nehemiah, one book, one story, with three main narrative arcs, the story of Zerubbabel, uh, then years later Ezra, then Nehemiah. And throughout, it's a story of return. God's people returning from exile to rebuild the temple, to rebuild and reform the people by the hearing and trusting of the word of God, and of course, to rebuild the walls of security around God's city. This was all so that they could bring the power and the love and the might of the kingdom of God to bear on the nations. And so a book like this is deeply needed for a time like ours, isn't it? This is sort of a strange time. It's, it's weird. It is a little bit awkward to be here. I, see folks with masks on. And, and even though, you know, I'm pleasantly surprised with the turnout, it's, it's, as John said, a number diminished until we are ready and able to all be together again. It's strange. We have a sense in which this is not the way it should be. It's, it's kind of hard to do some of these new rhythms and changes the way we do things. But if Nehemiah has anything to teach us, it's that the difficulty of returning and rebuilding and repairing is worth it. Absolutely worth it. And so the main point of our text this morning, all of Nehemiah chapter 1, is this, that we, as God's people, are to learn from Nehemiah. We are to respond righteously to the ruins around us. We are to respond righteously to the ruins around us. And, of course, one of the first things that God's Word always does is it shows us our, our fallen condition. It brings into pointed focus always a part of our fallen condition and need. And it's so obvious in a narrative like this that we all have ruins in our lives. I think if the pandemic has done anything for most of us, it's to show us our need. It's to show us that it's not good to be alone. It's, it's been an opportunity to really uncover some of the ruins and needs and challenges in our own hearts. For some of you, that might be a physical thing, right? I was talking to some of my older brothers recently, and they were just kind of joking about how, you know, getting old isn't a lot of fun. And just a few years back, they remember as, as strong men feeling kind of invincible. You know, they didn't really worry about ladders and things like that. They just kind of did, they kind of did their thing. And you know, as, as, you, as you get older, your body reminds you that, uh, you know, as one scholar has said, we are glorious ruins. 
And this body doesn't last forever. Only the resurrection body will. But maybe for some of you, it's, it's really an emotional or a spiritual thing. And being alone has been very difficult or being perhaps in such close proximity with the people in your family has been very difficult. Maybe you have stuff that was going on right before COVID hit that you haven't had a chance to deal with. Maybe you're trying to grieve and, and understand what to do with loss during this time. We all have ruins in our lives. Yesterday, I was at Desert Springs Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I worked there for a while after college, and I was there for a funeral for a very close family friend. And it just what a weird thing to try to grieve with masks on and don't touch me, right? And it, this was a difficult funeral because although we did certainly celebrate this brother's life, uh, he died far too young at 53 years old, and he died tragically. And so there was sadness and there was anger and there was mourning and crying out to the Lord, why? Why now? Why this devastation that's been left? Why these ruins? His daughter got up to give a beautiful eulogy. She's in her mid-20s. She's seven months pregnant. They'd been talking and talking about how her dad would be Papa to this new baby boy only three months away. And they even named their child after her dad. And he's gone. You all have stories like this. Whether they're big or they're small, it doesn't matter. They're real to you. And it's a reminder to us all that we live in a broken world. We live in a world of ruins. We need help. We need to be called to rebuild and restore. And this is where Nehemiah finds himself when he gets this bad report. It's a bad report. Nehemiah at the time is in Susa, this citadel, and it's basically the winter palace of the Persian king. So it's a nice place. He's actually doing pretty good. Serving the king his wine as the cupbearer, what that means is that he would have been the one to taste the wine before it was given to the king. So if it had been poisoned, everyone would know. Because there goes Nehemiah. He's in Susa and some friends make the long journey from Judah. You have to remember that Jerusalem was nothing but a dusty outpost on the very outskirts of the Persian Empire. And they come with sad tidings. We're told that it's great trouble and shame for the people of God. The, the walls have been torn down. The gates are in disrepair. And I got to wondering to myself, I mean, why is this such a big deal? Honestly, people have been there for a while now. The first Persian king to allow a return of the exiles was Cyrus. And by the time we get to Nehemiah, we're, you know, anywhere from 50 to 75 years into the trickling back into the exiles. So what's the big deal here about the walls? I mean, such a reaction, right? Look at Nehemiah. I, I wept. I mourned. I, I prayed. And what we have to remember is this is a little bit worse than, you know, the fact that your, your adobe wall has cracks in it. Most of you here in New Mexico have at least one adobe or stucco wall. And because you live here, I can guarantee it has at least one or two cracks in it. Even though you just got it repaired last year. Nice try. 
well, what's going on here is, is way worse. And, and to understand that, the first thing we need to do is get 30,000 feet in the air and see the big picture. So here's the big picture. God's people have returned from exile. They were slaves before in Egypt, and they were freed by the mighty hand of God. And they have been captured and enslaved again, and by the grace of God and in the providence of God, allowed once more to return. Think back on the history of God's people. Moses leads them out of Egypt because they believe the covenant promise given to Abraham that one day the children of God will be as many as the stars in the sky and a blessing to all nations. Moses can't enter the promised land, but his people enter in by Joshua. Years pass and eventually they clamor for a king after a series of failed judges and the Lord provides David and all God's people are thinking, this is the guy. This is the one, he's, he's the humble one, he's the little guy with the slingshot who, who trusts and believes and whose faith is counted to him as righteousness. Maybe he's the Messiah. And David's pretty good, like he's okay, he's actually not great if you read about David. And then Solomon comes around and he's, he's also pretty good. I mean, he only had 900 wives, but you know, he's kind of sketchy too, but he's okay. And surely God's people are thinking, well, well this has got to be it. We've read the prophecy from 2 Samuel 16. Someone is going to sit on the throne of David forever. And not a minute after everyone is, is in nail-butting anticipation about the kingdom of God coming and the Messiah returning and, and the kingdom being established in Jerusalem forever, the sons and the grandsons of David completely annihilate the hopes of the people as the kingdom of Israel is split between north and south. This unified kingdom under the word of God for the worship of God at the temple of God is destroyed and ripped in two. We know that eventually the northern kingdom, ten tribes, are not captured, but basically annihilated almost entirely by the Assyrian conquerors, brutal conquerors. And the southern kingdom, hearing the prophecies of Isaiah and other prophets, know that their time is coming, and eventually, almost 100 years later, the Babylonians march into Jerusalem under the order of a brutal dictator, King Nebuchadnezzar, and they destroy the city and lay it low. I mean, you can imagine the weeping and the brokenness as people are seeing the temple desecrated, the articles and, and furniture of the temple ripped out, stripped for its gold, God's people put in chains, women and children killed, and slaves led back in silence and tears, to Babylon. They're in Babylon for a long time, a couple generations, almost 80 years, fulfilling the prophecy given in Daniel. And eventually, again, in God's perfect timing, Cyrus, the king of Persia, begins his military march around the ancient Near East and destroys the Babylonians. And to the great surprise of the Jews, Cyrus the conqueror issues a decree that you can read about in the beginning of the book of Ezra, and he basically says, you can go back. You can go back to your homelands and your houses of worship, and you can rebuild, and you can have your religion as long as you do what I say, but you can go back. And God's people rejoice. And they're wondering as they return. First, under Zerubbabel, the pioneer then Ezra the priest, and lastly, Nehemiah the project administrator. They're wondering this whole time, a time that spans almost 100 years, is this it? 
Egypt, we were free. Then Babylon, we failed, we sinned, we, were, we, we worshiped our idols, but now we're back. Is this it now? Let's rebuild the temple and the altar. That was the work of Zerubbabel. Let's reinstate the worship of God in the temple of God. That was the work of Ezra the priest. And now Nehemiah gets this report and he knows in his heart of hearts, oh man, it's still not happening. So they wonder. That's the big picture, but there's an immediate picture we need to deal with as well. First of all, as you well know, walls offer protection. Walls offer security. Walls make good neighbors. And in the ancient Near East, some of you have traveled there or you've been to the castles of Europe, perhaps. The the walls of an ancient city were its protection. The walls of an ancient city actually provided security for the women and the children and the workers and the farmers who lived within that city. And so for the walls to be torn down means that God's people now are physically vulnerable. Their physical comfort and security to be the worshiping people of God has been compromised. But it's more than that, because let me tell you how things worked in the ancient Near East and still work today, by the way. We just call it something else. Cyrus, the great king of Persia, and now his predecessor, Artaxerxes, who's the king that Nehemiah serves, Artaxerxes. They were great kings, kings of the whole known world. Kings of kings, indeed. And they would make pacts with the lesser kings and warlords that lived in their regions. So the great king was called a suzerain king. And the lesser kings were called vassals. And the vassals would make pacts of protection with the greater kings. Well, we know from the history of Ezra and Nehemiah that there had actually been an attempt at rebuilding the wall some years earlier. But apparently there was some sort of frustration, rebellion, or uprising. We don't know all the details. But years earlier, because we're in the 20th year of Artaxerxes' reign, that king had actually issued a decree that there would be no rebuilding, and actually that he was essentially removing his protection from God's people. He would no longer provide and protect for them as a suzerain to to their vassal outpost. So not only are the walls broken, compromising their security, but they're essentially alone. And it's almost worse that they're alone. But wait, there's more. And the there's more is that the tearing down of these walls, which they have spent years reconstructing, are symbolic to call into question the very promise that we find in Ezekiel chapter 1. One scholar calls it the promise of the prophetic package that the returning people of God will be a part of the rebuilding of the kingdom of God to usher in the messianic age. You read in Ezekiel chapter 1 verse 1 that all of this is about the fulfillment of the prophet Jeremiah. Well, what did Jeremiah say? He said one day God's people will return and he will be their God and they will be his people. He will dwell in their midst. He will protect them and he will give them new hearts and he will write the law on their hearts. And so all of this is thrown up into the possibility of not happening. It's thrown up into disarray as Nehemiah receives this bad report. That's why he reacts in the way that he does. We all have ruins. So how does Nehemiah respond righteously to the realistic state of despair and sadness and trouble and shame? of these ruins. 
which means so much more than cracks in the wall. Well, let's look at Nehemiah's response. He says, Lord, help us. And as we think about this, I want us to pray the same prayer for the ruins in our own lives, emotional, spiritual, psychological, physical. God, would you help us to respond in the way that Nehemiah responds? Would you give us the grace to do that? And would you convict us? Convict, I mean, I'll tell you, I was convicted studying this this week. Of all the places I run to try to fix the ruined walls in my life, Nehemiah responds righteously. We see that he has a righteous indignation. Why? Upon hearing this story and knowing now all that it means, it's as if Nehemiah says, this is not the way it's supposed to be. This is not how it should be. That God's people would be free, free to return, but still not safe. Free to return to the promised land and the city of God, but still not safe to worship and to build the kingdom of God. Nehemiah here has a burden for two things. His first burden is for God's glory. God's glory among the nations. Because if the walls are in ruins, if the gates are torn down, it does not tell a true story about God's God's might and power and fulfilling of his promises to the world around them. His burden is for God's glory, but also for God's people. All across the Old Testament, we see that God has a heart for the fatherless and the widow and the orphan and the one who is in need. And God repeatedly, especially in the prophets, says, I am angry at your injustice. And a day is coming when I'm going to take all this brokenness, all this injustice, all the tragedy, all the ruins, and I'm going to make it right. What does this lead Nehemiah to do? And in this, he is a leader. In this, he truly is a leader, a shepherd. He prays. His knee-jerk reaction is to pray. Not to fix it. Oh, (laughs) conviction? His knee-jerk reaction isn't just like, I can fix this. And by the way, he's the cupbearer which means he has private and regular access to the most powerful person in the world. Not only private access, but deep trust because he's the one who tastes the goblet. But he doesn't go to his personal powers in the court of Artaxerxes, nor does he run to fear. We don't see Nehemiah's response saying, okay, that's it, the sky is falling, the pandemic is here, the walls are ruined, I'm over it, I'm done, I can't. I can't deal with it. Instead, he raises his heart and his voice to the only one he knows who can help. And in this prayer, there's really three ways that he does that. The the, the prayer itself is kind of like an arrow. It has similar sayings throughout that tie it together. For example, he calls out to God. He ends with God. He talks about the servants of Israel. He talks about the servants at the end. But there's really three things that I think we can take from Nehemiah's righteous response to the ruins in this prayer. First of all, he acknowledges God. He begins with God first. He says, Lord, would your ear hear these things? Because you are the king. He says, you're the God of heaven. You're the one who controls all things. You are sovereign and you are good. You're the one who knows the name of your people and loves your children and your servants. Some scholars have said that it's possible that Jesus even 
pulled a little bit from Nehemiah's prayer in constructing the Lord's Prayer. Father in heaven, glory be to your name. The cry of Nehemiah's heart is that God would be vindicated and glorified. And God would be trusted and God would be lifted up. And so that's where he goes first and foremost. We see it in his name. And he fulfills the meaning of his name. His name, uh, Nehemiah, Nehemiah, you hear the Yah in there for Yahweh, simply means Yahweh comforts. The Lord of heaven and earth, the I am that I am, the one who holds the entire world together by the word of his power, comforts his people. Isaiah chapter 40, comfort, comfort my people. And so Nehemiah begins by leading and leading by praying and praying by starting with God. He doesn't go to the laundry list. He doesn't go to, all right, Lord, you know about the wall, so let's start there, and here's my plan. If you just sit down for a second, I want to show you my PowerPoint presentation, and I've got an Excel document for you to look over as well. He doesn't do that. He begins in the humble place of, God, you know who you are, and you know what you have said, and we're going to start there. So here's the point. Even though Nehemiah is a gifted administrator, a gifted project manager, here's the truth for us, folks, as we trickle back in from exile to the gathered people of God in this church? Do we want to return well? Do we want to rebuild the kingdom? And first, we must remember. If you want to return and you want to rebuild, then first, you must remember. This leads Nehemiah to confession. And doesn't it do that for us as well? Man, when you start with God, his holiness, his power, his perfection, doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't destroy you. Thank God we're not consumed because of Christ, but certainly it humbles us. And now Nehemiah makes confession. He begins making corporate confession for the people of God, the people of Israel. And he confesses specifically their idolatry. They're turning to false gods, false powers, false kings and kingdoms for security. The very thing that landed them in exile in the first place. But I love this about Nehemiah. I feel like a lot of kind of pastor, preacher types could learn from this. He doesn't just keep it in the third person abstraction of those people, your children. He makes it personal. He says, as for me and as for my father's house, we have sinned as well. Lord, I need your help. It's not just about those people, but it's it's my heart that needs to be restored and healed and redeemed. Now there's speculation about the particular confession that Nehemiah offers personally. He says that he has broken the laws of Moses. And yet we know that there was a dispensation for the Israelites while they were in exile because you couldn't exactly keep the law because they're in Babylon, there's no temple, there's no worship. So folks have speculated about what this means and I want to be careful with that, but one interpretation I found that resonates with me is this. As I said, Zerubbabel, 50 or so years. Nehemiah, 12, 13 years. Wrong. Ezra, 12, 13 years. Nehemiah. There's been some time since God's people started to return. And yet Nehemiah hasn't returned. Why not? Well, to be honest with you, just talking to Randy Deaton about this in the first service, man. Like, I'm glad we live in 2020. Even if we have it really bad, I mean, there's running water, there's stuff. In the, in the days of Artaxerxes, pretty much everybody was in trouble unless you lived with the king. 
Nehemiah is feasting on the best food. He's probably sleeping on a real bed. He has help and friendships and all the things that he needs. He had power and he had a position in the court of the king. And yet he hadn't returned, even though he had been free to return for a long time. And you wonder if maybe there's just a little part of Nehemiah going, I don't really know if I want to go back to the Dust Bowl. I don't really know if I want to go back to like the hot, rowdy Jerusalem. I mean, I'm, you mean I don't get to go to Susa next winter and go on the ski trip with Artaxerxes? I mean, you know, you could just imagine like, hey, our family's worked really hard. We read the book of Daniel, you know. I mean, certain people have been shown favor in the court of these kings in Babylon and now in Persia. Well, maybe I can do more good if I stay here than return. We don't know if that's the case, but what we do know is this. He says, I've broken God's law. I haven't done the things that God has told me to do and been with the people that God has told me to be with. What we know is this, and it's true for all of us amidst our ruins, that the law exposes our heart. Right? We can, we can clean it up pretty good on the outside. Have you murdered anyone? Of course not. Okay, have you hated anyone in your heart? Ooh. Have you committed adultery? No. Well, what about lusting in your heart? Ah. Okay. So the the full and true and deep application of the law, it doesn't provide for us righteousness in and of ourselves. No, in fact, it it, it lays low all of our self-righteousness, especially our religious self-righteousness. And the point is this, folks, if we want to see God's power, if we want to see God moving by the power of his Holy Spirit to comfort us as he brings us Jesus Christ, the true word of God for the glory of the Father, if we want the power of God, we need to confess our need. We need to confess our need. Because pride comes before a fall. The scripture never says, confession comes before a fall. Man, if you confess your need to the Lord and even to your brothers and sisters where it's appropriate, if you're weak and vulnerable, man, God's going to just mock that. Don't be dumb. No, it's the opposite. It's those who walk around, especially religious people and me far too often, looking like we have it all together. That is a stench in the nostrils of God. Pride comes before a fall. And so Nehemiah responds with confession. And lastly, he makes his request. Having acknowledged God as Yahweh who comforts, having confessed his need and believed that that need will be met, he makes his request. And it's interesting because Nehemiah's petition is not based on any of his ability to discern what needs to be done. Again, notice what's missing from the text. There's no big plan on how Nehemiah is going to rebuild the walls. Instead, Nehemiah's petition is based on God's character and promises. And so he quotes for us Deuteronomy 28 passages and Deuteronomy 30, where Moses, as he's renewing covenant with the people of God, for God's sake, gives them kind of that covenant structure. If you do this, you'll live, and if you don't, you'll die. Where Moses says, look, this is what God has told me to tell you. If you trust him and love him, There's blessing, but if you don't, you'll be in exile. But don't worry. If you return to him, he will return to you and bring you back to the promised land. Nehemiah makes this request because he knows that the God he makes it to is one who keeps the promises that he makes. 
He knows that this is what God has already revealed as his perfect will. And so he's fearless like a child coming to his father to ask, to beg, to even demand that God would do what God has said he is going to do. And so you hear Nehemiah say, Lord, hear me. This is your character we're talking about. This is what you've promised to do. Grant me success. And I think this response and prayer, it leaves us, God's people, with a couple questions. The first is this. Does our heart break for what God's heart breaks for? As we consider what it means and what we will do to return and rebuild and restore and redeem the Santa Fe that we're now going back into, whatever new normal looks like, will our heart break for the things that God's heart breaks for? You know, a city like ours gets hit hard from something like this. An art and tourist city, it's the first one to get hit, and it's going to be one of the last ones, I think, to come back, realistically. Because most people that I know right now aren't, you know, whatever they had in savings is going to stay in savings. It's not going to buy a $10,000 bronze head. Intentions are high. I mean, even at the grocery store, you can't see people. It's weird. Caitlin, my wife, who's like the nicest person, you know, got yelled at at the grocery store the other day. It's like, whoa, tensions are just high. We're all on edge. It's real. This sort of corporate anxiety, it's a thing. And we don't want anyone to get sick. And we want everyone to stay safe. And we're split on all these different things. But brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, that is an opportunity for God's people. That's an opportunity for us. Does our heart break for the things that God's heart breaks for, for our neighbors, for those around us in need? Yes. And we are uniquely equipped to do something about it. Because we have the God that Nehemiah prayed to, the Lord of heaven and earth, who not only makes but keeps promises. Who doesn't just, you know, he's not some old bearded clockmaker who just says, all right, go for it. Hope you humans can work it out. He says, no, I've got a plan here to redeem, to restore, to save, not based on what you can do, but what I will do for you forever. We are uniquely equipped right now in Santa Fe and in our friendships and in our families to be those who acknowledge, who confess, who request, who return, restore, and rebuild. And we're going to end here with a twist because there's a twist. There's There's always a twist. There's a twist to the book of Nehemiah and in particular to this passage. If it were to be preached as, okay, You've got ruins. Here's how you respond. Respond like Nehemiah. Be a good little boy and girl. Here's the twist. If we are called, as Nehemiah leads us, to respond righteously to the ruins, no one cares more about that than God himself. So I'm going to ruin the book for you. All right. Sorry, not sorry. That was weird. I wonder how that sounded online. Sorry, sorry. You guys... I'm going to ruin the book for you real quick, because here's the thing. It doesn't end well. There's three narrative cycles, Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah. Every single one of them ends with a downward spiral of God's people screwing up again. Imagine that. And at the end of Nehemiah, it's a three-punch combo. Not only are they sort of dishonoring the temple and the altar that Zerubbabel built, not only are they no longer following God's law, as they've heard from Nehemiah, but now they're doing all sorts of other things, and we're told that the walls are once again in disrepair at the end of Nehemiah. 
Three cycles that all end in downers. But we began with Ezra 1.1, the prophetic package of hope that the exiles in return would be the ones to usher in the kingdom of the Messiah through the rebuilding project. So what's going on here? What do we learn? Well, here's what we learn. Even if you have a great pioneer in Zerubbabel and a great priest in Ezra and a great project manager in Nehemiah, the efforts of men and women are never enough to conjure up revival and to bring in the kingdom of God. Because Jeremiah 31 had promised not a fixed heart, a new heart. And Ezekiel 36 said, I will put my spirit within you. I can't do it. There's no fulfillment of the fullness of the new covenant promises at the end of the book of Nehemiah. Now, he's a great leader. Of course, we can get leadership principles from Nehemiah. And many, many books have been written on that topic. How to be a leader like Nehemiah. And many church building campaigns have been called the Nehemiah Project, and on and on. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm not despising that. But this book really isn't about leadership principles, folks. Like how you can do better and be a better leader. It's really about God choosing these three great leaders, and that's still not being enough. Because the book is about Jesus. It's a story after God's own heart, because God is the one who is after our hearts. And he must do it. He is the true and better pioneer to come back and rebuild his temple out of living stones, the people of God. He is the true and better high priest who is now finally seated at the right hand of God, interceding for you forever. And he is the true and better Nehemiah, the rebuilder of the ruins of your life, not based on your works, but by grace through faith alone. He is all of these things because Jesus is the Redeemer. He's the only one who can fully, righteously respond to what's been ruined in our lives because he not only gives us a new heart, but he gives us his righteousness in exchange for our unrighteousness. And that's why the Bible tells us that we, the people of God, as we return and rebuild, as we respond by faith, as we ask for God's help amidst the ruins, he will do it in Jesus, his Son, He will build for himself a new city that is now no longer limited to one geographical area, but spreads all across the earth, a temple of living stones. He will do it for his glory, for his children, for us, forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that uh, Nehemiah, such a good word to us, and we, we do, Lord. We want to learn from Nehemiah. We don't in any way look down upon the great leadership that Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah brought and offered, and they stepped up, and they, they were great leaders. They were just men, just men and women like us, not the Christ. So when we think about the big, big picture, we see that after they've kind of done everything right, God's people are still in trouble. They're still in need of a savior, a redeemer, a prophet, a priest, and a king. Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, who actually has the power of God to take a heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh. To put the Holy Spirit of God within us, to write the law on our hearts. And so, Jesus, we praise you that you are the one. That you took 
our sin and our shame and our unrighteousness, and you forgave us completely. But you didn't just forgive us as servants in your house. You put your royal robe around us and made us sons and daughters. Praise you, Jesus. And as we come to your table now, I pray, Lord, that we would feast on those promises, that we would remember that they are true, that even amidst our ruins, you respond with your own righteousness. Amen.